Morning, everyone. Let's take a moment and pray together as we consider this beautiful passage from Isaiah this morning in preparation for Christmas very soon. Please join me in prayer. Father, we'd like to pause and just thank you now that you are a God of comfort. And I pray, Father, that uh, we would be open to the ministry of your Holy Spirit this morning so that each one of us can receive comfort that perhaps even in this moment we don't even know we need. Thank you, Father, for the incredible gift of your life. May we not only receive all that you are, but may we be fortified and equipped to share your life, to be the presence of comfort in a very anxious world. And we'll thank you. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. We live in a time of uh, anxiety, a great deal of anxiety and a great deal of pain. 2016, Americans reported 39% more Americans as being, they self-identified as anxious in 2016 versus 2015. And in 2017 versus 2016, again, up 40%. So anxiety is on the rise. And this isn't just uh, known statistically. It's known by the presenting problem of uh, the anxiety that shows up in our addiction, actually, to medications. There's, a, there's an, as we all know, an addiction to pain medications in our culture, and, and when there's pain, when there's anxiety, when there's fear, we, all of us in the room, seek comfort. And it's appropriate that we seek comfort. We're made by God, physiologically and psychologically and spiritually, to seek resolution to pain. We're made to seek comfort. So uh, that's a good thing, but we live in a world filled with pain, and there are a million things that make us feel uncomfortable, right? Hidden addictions, relational strains, loneliness, uncertainty about our own personal future, uncertainty about a national future, economic uncertainty, health challenges, the pain of financial hardship, the list goes on and on, and whenever there's pain in our lives, we seek comfort appropriately. So we have a word here in Isaiah chapter 40 that is just so beautiful to a, to a world of anxiety, to a world of pain. Uh, Isaiah stands up, and this is kind of a turning point in the book of Isaiah, and Isaiah says this, comfort, it's available. Comfort. And then he says, comfort, my people. And my people here, kind of lexically and grammatically, it's not just Israel. God is saying, my, my people, which is all people. <laughs> comfort. So that's what we want to look at this morning, is kind of the, the nature of Christ as the true source of comfort by looking at three aspects of comfort that are covered in this text. And so if you have a bulletin, you can see the nature of comfort, the recipients of comfort, the universality of comfort. All of these so appropriate so that we can not only receive the comfort of God, but that we might then go out and be the presence of comfort in a very anxious world. So we begin by looking at this morning at the nature of comfort seen in this text. Comfort, my people, says your God. And there's three things that provide comfort for us vis-a-vis -vis our relationship with God. First of all, our iniquity is removed. Second, relationship restored. And third, as we'll see what I call, hugging till relaxed. That's not in the text, but you'll, you'll understand as we get there, right? So we want to begin here. Like, here's the gift. Your iniquity is removed. That's what the text says. And this is significant because the original readers, when they think of uh, iniquity as the nation of Israel... They think of not God taking away iniquity, removing it, 
but of God covering iniquity. In other words, there was a, there's an Old Testament word theologically. It's the word atonement. And atonement literally means to cover sin. So in other words, it's still there, but now it's been covered somehow, right? So I use this illustration in the previous service. This is my sin, right? Cup full of sin. This is the covering. And now you're like, this presto, no sin, right? Oh, look at Richard. He, he just has a handkerchief, nothing else. No, actually, behind the veil, still there, right? And so, so when Isaiah then says profoundly, uh, her iniquity has been removed, what that means is that's no longer who you are. Now, it's still like that tree is going to need to die and be put on the rubbish heap, but it's not who you are. Your iniquity is done. So that when Jesus shows up, uh, John the Baptist doesn't say, behold the Lamb of God who covers the sin of the world. He says, behold the Lamb of God who what? Takes away the sin of the world. It's gone. <sighs> no more. It's not your identity. This is, this is gigantic, right? Because failure in your life and mine, and we all fail, Fear is the soil in which shame, disengagement, hypocrisy, fear of being discovered, and anxiety grow. Like when I fail, now I not, I, not only do I have my failure, but I have this image to keep up. I have to prevent you from seeing my failure. So now I wonder always, am I going to be discovered? Am I going to be found out? Like all of this goes on, and it creates sometimes this disengagement. We pull ourselves out of the game. We run from God. We hide from God. We hide from each other. It's in our nature. We see it in the Bible, Right? So we deal with shame and, and, and uh, failure by running, but our running is predicated on a wrong view of God. We're, we're kind of certain that God's mad at us, that God's going to cut us off, because that's often how we treat each other, right? Like, if somebody lets you down, you distance yourself from that person. And here, God is saying, no, run to me, not from me. But understand that it's in your nature and mine when we fail, to run from God. When Peter denied Christ, he didn't run to Jesus and say, man, I blew it. Immediately, this is Peter, I'm done. I'm going fishing, and he left. Like he pulled himself out of God's story, so to speak. When Adam and Eve failed in the garden, first thing they did, they covered, they didn't name their shame, they covered their shame, right? They made these fig leaf things that were totally inadequate, covering their shame, and then when they heard God's voice, God seeking them, they ran and hid. And when God approaches Adam, Adam said, I heard your voice, and I was what? Afraid. I was afraid. Because like we all know, when you fail, here's what happens. Boom. Like that's God, right? And I'm here to say no. Isaiah's here to say no. That's not God. There's a better way. And here's the better way. Like the starting point of the entire conversation is this, I'm not enough. I'm not good enough, not holy enough, not generous enough, not disciplined enough, not faithful enough, not zealous enough, not loving enough. I'm not enough. And by the way, I don't even know you, and I say this on the authority of the Bible, you're not enough either. Ha, there you go. So none of us are enough, and it's actually pretty liberating, or should be, but still isn't. Because though we know we're not enough, we can't quite bring ourselves to believe that our iniquity 
is gone. That God doesn't see us that way anymore. So we're stuck in this old identity. And yet if we really do a good Bible study, we will understand God's grace is infinite, matchless, way beyond what we can ever create or fabricate. God's, God's just so loving that we can't imagine it. That's why God calls himself in the Old Testament the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Why? Because those three guys and Jacob's 12 sons were disasters. Like their family is one of the most dysfunctional families I've ever heard of, honestly, right? Like you could, if you do any counseling, you go, yeah, we all have our stuff. That family, they make the Real Housewives of New Jersey look like Sunday school teachers or something like that. <laughs> like this is really dark. I'm the God of Abraham. Like that means I'm for Abraham. You know, Abraham, the one who's afraid and lies about the identity of his wife so that she sleeps with the king of Egypt and who himself sleeps with the maid. I'm, I'm the God of that. I'm on that guy's team. I'm the God of Isaac. You know, the one who unabashedly favors one son over the other, twins, rather than loving them equally, and seeks to thwart God's will. I'm the God of that guy, Isaac. I'm the God of Jacob. You know that weaselly kind of nervous lying thief who stole the blessing from his brother? And I'm the God of the, 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 the 12 sons, including Judah, who A, sells his brother as a slave, B, uh, sleeps with his daughter-in-law, thinking her to be a prostitute because she has a veil on, doesn't recognize her, impregnates her, she gives birth to twins, and one of those twins is named Perez, who's the great, 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 great grandfather of Jesus. So like God is going to great lengths to say to you and me, I'm on your side. No, like you fail. It's okay. I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I mean, these people, these guys would not even be welcome in church. Often are all welcome, but please sit in the back. No. This is, these are God's chosen people. God's trying to say something important here. When David sleeps with a girl next door, impregnates her, kills the husband, and God says to David, you're a man after God's own heart. God isn't justifying his sin. God is saying, I know you. And in spite of your sin, in spite of your failure, in spite of the fact that you make terrible decisions, I am irrevocably, unconditionally, infinitely for you. I'm on your team. So don't run away. Don't pull yourself out of God's game. God is trying to show us that God's love is not performance-based in any way at all. Uh, the goal of the Christian life, 1 Timothy 1.5, love from a pure heart with a clear conscience. How can I have a clear conscience? Here's the only way. My sins have been what? Removed. So God's dealt with it. As far, Psalm 103, verse 12. As far as the east is from the west, so far has God re removed my sin from me. So what happens now is uh, if I know that when I fail, God takes it away, then I can be honest with my failures. Does that make sense? Because, because now God can come to me in my failure and then meet me there, and, and God's meeting me in my failure is the place where I'll be transformed. But if I run from God in my failure, then I'm preemptively cutting myself off from the very source of healing that I need. So God is saying, run to me, not away from me. 
The word picture I use here is this. God wants to be the parent that you run to. And in my family, I had... I was gifted with two parents, both good, both loving, but one for me felt safer than the other when I blew it. Does that make sense? Did anyone else in the room have this? Like there was one parent you always ran to when you, when you made a mistake. For some it was a dad, for some it was a mom. Uh, I'll just tell you, in, with my kids, I was not the one that <laughs> my kids came to. When, like when they, when they blew it. When, yeah, it's funny. I've done this now all morning and people are poking their parents like, yeah, you're not the one. You're not the one. Or you are the one, whatever. But we all identify. We totally identify. My kid, when my kids would come to me, like I would diagnose and lecture. But when they got a mom... They'd love. Little Holly, she's my youngest. He, uh, you guys don't know, I have three kids, some of you know. Back in the day, we lived up in the mountains. We had a giant maple tree in the front yard. And so um, the leaves are, it's fall, and there's a huge pile of leaves in the front yard. And the kids were charged with raking the leaves and putting them in a big pile. So they did, but they hid Holly in the bottom of the leaf pile. And then I come out, and I'm like, I'm going to have tons of fun here and destroy their leaf pile. So I get on a bike, and I'm riding straight toward this leaf pile that has my inner star. And, of course, Holly can't see a thing. She's under there, you know. And the kids are like, don't do it. Don't do it, Dad. Stop, 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 stop. And just at the last second, for, they, were t they looked terrified, like better than acting. And so I was, I just pull off at the last second. And then the kids are crying, and then Holly pulls, she jumps out of the leaf pile, and I was mad, right? <laughs> I was mad. I said, don't you ever do that again. I could have murdered your sister, and it would have been your fault, right? And then they start crying, and they run to mom for some reason. Who knows why? <laughs> How does that happen? Wouldn't it be awesome... Wouldn't it, be, wouldn't it be wonderful, like for any of us in the room, what if the first place you go when you fail, when you're afraid, when you're worried, what do you run to God? God wants to be the parent you run to. That's why God says, hey, come to me. Why? Your iniquity? It's already gone. Even before you come to me, done. I mean, I get it. You failed. Whatever. I want to heal you, man. Come to me. So that's the first thing. Under this rubric of... Uh, the nature of comfort, iniquity removed. Second, relationship restored. Verse 9, get up on the high mountain and say to the cities of Judah, this is your God. This is your God. The one who comforts in your affliction, the one who says, I will never leave you or forsake you, the one who is infinitely for you. So the phrase I like to use, the kind of the word picture for this, relationship restored, is my healthiest relationships, and I don't have any, none of us do, that are perfectly healthy. Like in a perfectly healthy relationship, you never feel like you're on eggshells. Do you know what I mean by that phrase, on eggshells? Yeah. Um, I, my wife is totally my best friend. You know, we've been married like almost 40 years, and we love each other profoundly. And yet, there are days when I walk in the room, and I, immediately, she doesn't even have to say anything, and I know this. This is not a day for fun and laughter. Like, she is... <laughs> She's, she, there's a space here, and we all know it. Anybody who, like Eric, I work with each other, we know it. We read each other. We know when it's safe. Kindy and I work with each other. We know, we know. Yeah. 
And what God is saying here is, look, I'm never the guy that you need to be afraid of, ever. There's no eggshells with God. In other words, uh, God's not sleep-deprived, hormonally whacked, <laughs> insulin insufficient, bummed, afraid, moody. Ne no. Hebrews 13.8, Jesus Christ, rock solid, same yesterday, today, and forever. So, no eggshells means I can, I can show up in relation with God always. And in fact, Hebrews 10.22 says it this way. Let's go right into the presence of God with a sincere heart. You know what sincere means? It means without wax. It means not pretending. Like, don't show up with Jesus thinking, now what can I do to impress Jesus so that he, you know, is impressed with me and I'm going to hide stuff. No. Sincere means, God, I'm mad. God, I'm afraid. God, I'm lonely. God, I'm hopeful. God, I'm filled with joy. Whatever. Like, in our exact situation, come. Why? Because our guilty conscience has been sprinkled with Christ's blood. We are clean. We can go to God knowing God fully, unconditionally, infinitely accepts us. So let's go and receive healing, right? Relationship restored. Third thing here. Verse 11, like a shepherd, he will tend his flock. In his arms, he will gather lamps, carry them in his bosom, gently uh, lead nursing ewes. I call this, this is what I call hugging till relaxed. And the reason I call, that, call it this is because if, if you've ever been around shepherding, you know that when uh, the shepherd goes up into the high Alps, like at least in my world where I traveled to Austria a bit. My wife went up in the high Alps and she brought the sheep down out of the Alps with our, with our friends one, one September. And there was a little lamb that had just been born. It was like two days old and it couldn't walk down the hill. So Donna picks up this lamb and holds it in her arms, wraps it in her arms. And at the very beginning, when you pick up the lamb, the lamb is, you know what I mean? It's nervous. Like it's like, who are you? What are you doing? But then at some point, the lamb moves from fear to trust and relaxes, right? And then, and then Donna would carry the lamb down. It's a, and it's such a beautiful word picture because it's so poignant and applicable to our own relationship with God, isn't it, right? Uh, there's a guy, David Snark is his name, and he wrote a book called Passionate Marriage. It's a, it's a book about, mostly about sexuality in marriage, and one of the things that he prescribes to couples is something called hugging till relaxed. So couples are not able to connect properly. And he says, so I want you to go home and hug until you're both relaxed. And they go, oh, well, we hug all the time. Yeah, no, 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 no. I want you to hug till relaxed. Well, what, how long will that take? Oh, you know, three minutes, four minutes, five. Can you imagine hugging for five minutes? Who does that? No one. No one. And so then... In the book, he talks about couples' first experience. Some can't handle more than 10 seconds. Happily married, right? But they're like this. This is, I'm quoting people. I get nervous. Why is she hugging me? <laughs> it's too intimate, somebody else confesses. Here's another guy. I don't know why, but it brings stuff up that I don't really want to deal with. And of course, I mean, the presenting solution like, we're, it's hard for us to relax. But we're like, oh, no, it's too long. Come on. We got stuff to do. There's, you know, sweet potatoes to dice and different things. So stop this. No, don't stop this. 
There's something profound happening here, and here's why. Like if you, like that lamb, can come to a point where you actually relax in your spouse's arm. By the way, this is for spouses. This is not like an icebreaker for church. <laughs> I'm just telling you, right? It's not an icebreaker. So like next Sunday, don't be like <laughs> five minutes. Really? No, don't do that. But with your spouse, if you're hugged until your emotional armor is off, I will just tell you, it's super powerful because there's a vulnerability in that where you, like, you, are, you relax because you're known and hugged. Does that make sense? You're not just known, you're known and hugged. So all your joy, all your sorrow, all your hope, all your disappointment, all your failure, all your success, you're known and hugged. My grandmother was this for me when I was a kid. Uh, and I'd go down to California, or I lived in California, but I'd go over to the coast, and my grandmother was a baker at a camp, would hug me, and just today, every time I bring up her hugs, I get goosebumps. It, that was so safe. I used to say, safest place on the planet in my grandmother's arms. I felt unconditionally loved. Powerful, powerful. And then my favorite hug of all time was in Candlestick Park, San Francisco Giants, foggy night, I'm super cold. My parents neglected to bring me adequate uh, warm clothing because we were from Fresno and who would think it would be 55 and windy uh, on, a, on a Saturday night in the Bay Area. So I'm freezing. <laughs> and, uh, but I don't wanna say anything because I know if I say anything, we're gonna leave. And I wanna watch the Giants. So my dad, I'll never forget, he picks me up, puts me in his lap, wraps his big business 60s overcoat around me. How come he got one? I don't know. <laughs> wraps it around me, orders hot chocolate, and is feeding me hot chocolate. Yeah. You know what? Uh, when, my, when my dad died, the night that he died, I went, and he was unconscious. But I went, and I recalled that story with him. I said, Dad, you don't know how powerful that was. I felt safe. Hey, listen. That's a shadow of God. God wants to wrap you in arms, hugging till relaxed. Don't, when you meet with God, don't tell him all the good stuff you've done all your hopes, relax. And if in relaxing, your weariness comes to the surface, let it come to the surface. Your failure comes to the surface, your doubt, your shame, let it come. The hug won't end. You're safe. You're wrapped. There's hot chocolate right there. <laughs> I mean, God, one author writes this way. When we learn that God is safe, Psalm 56, when I'm afraid, I'll put my trust in you. When we... When we learn, I got to say, through the practice of meditating on Scripture, this is why spiritual disciplines are such a big deal. When I inhale and I say, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want, and I exhale, I say, thank you. And I don't just say it twice, but I repeat it till relaxed. Through regular prayer, meditative prayer, you become less and less interested in protecting this self-created false relative identity that you've been working so hard to prop up. You don't have to attack it, it just falls away. 
and you experience a natural kind of humility, a child resting in his parents' arms. If your prayer goes deep, invading your unconscious, your whole view of the world will change from fear to connection because you don't live inside your fragile ego anymore. In meditation, you move from ego consciousness to awareness of how profoundly you, loved, you are loved by Christ, from being fear-driven to love-driven. That's the gospel. Of course, you can only do this if someone else is holding you. You can't hold yourself. Someone else needs to hold you to take away fear and satisfy your desire for a great lover. And I'm telling you, married or not, you have a great lover. That's the Christmas message. So here's the thing. God wants to be that safe place for all of us. God wants to wrap us in God's arms so that there is for you a space of total vulnerability, confession, healing, encouragement, revelation. Christianity is about performance. Our faith is first and foremost about receiving so that we just go out and be people who are deeply loved because then that love flows out of us and we become a comfort to others. The safe place that God wants to be needs to become a reality in our lives and it shows up certainly through meditating on scripture as I've already shared, but it also shows up in community. Like when you are the presence of Christ for me, that creates a safe place. And it shows up in creation for many of us. I used to go, when I, we lived on the North Cascades Highway, I used to go up to Sauk Mountain, a little short hike up to the top. I'd go there once a week alone with my Bible and it's pretty powerful to, to be up there and look out to the islands and look at the pink sunset of Mount Baker and just realize the God who made all this knows me, loves me, accepts me. Yeah. But here's the deal. To allow God to hug you this way, to receive this, this sense of my iniquity has been taken away, to know that I'm not walking on eggshells, like I have, to, I have to receive it. I have to. And look at Jesus, Matthew 23. Oh, Jerusalem, you kill the prophets. You stone those who sent you. I've wanted to gather you under my wings and you were not willing. Not willing. So here's a question. If, if the God of all comfort is making God's self available to you and I, how come everybody doesn't receive it? And here's the answer. Only two kinds of people receive it. First, those who fail and are afraid. Second, those who are frail and suffering loss. Those people receive it, but nobody else. So who fails and are, are afraid? Well, verse 2, right? Those who know their iniquity, that's failure. And those who are afraid. And like when, when Isaiah speaks here, he's, he's predicting centuries of oppression for Israel. Centuries. So at the moment when Israel <coughs> hears this, not only do they know they failed... But they're about to be under the hand of the Assyrians and then the Babylonians and then the Medes and the Persians and then the Greeks and then the Romans. And no matter when Isaiah was written, we know this, they were afraid. So God's tenderness frees us to be able to tell others and mirror to others what God first told us. Hey, the war's over. Like, I'm telling you the end of the story, everything reconciled. I'm telling you, your iniquity, not in the future, now, Pardon, your sin, forgiven. There's nothing you can do to make God love you less. Nothing. No matter how drastic your failure, because God never loved you because you performed. And conversely, there's nothing you can do to make God love you more, so you don't need to be uh, in this vacillating journey between pride when you do well and condemnation and shame when you fail. Get over yourself. 
It's not about your failure or success. It's about God loving you completely unconditionally and you learn to rest in God's arms. So if you fail, good news. Yeah, you can come to God and receive your iniquities done. If you're afraid, you can come to God and receive this. The war's over. I've already won. And if you're frail and suffering loss, it's for you too. Frail? Yes, frail. Uh, verse 6, verse 7. All flesh is grass, like a, like a, a mountain flower. We live in the mountains and we know, we know the rhythm of mountain wildflowers now. And I love it. Daisies come first and foxglove comes at the end and there's like five others in between. They're all there and I pick them and, you know, put them in bottles on the dinner table. Uh, but they're, they're just there for like two weeks and they're gone. And God is saying, hey, wake up. That's reality. 2 Corinthians 4 says it this way. This earthly tent is, are you ready for this? Wasting away. In other words, life is short. 70 years, 80 years. So I get it. Take your fish oil pills, eat your kale, you know, walk, get your sleep. But you don't win that war. Nobody does. And the good news of the gospel is, hey, that's okay. Because guess what? Those who embrace their mortality actually are at a profound place of receiving the things that matter most. I've been, I, as a pastor, I've seen profound transformation in hospice care too many times not to pay attention. And anyone, all, all of us who are pastors know it. Suddenly, the shaking happens and you're like, oh yeah, here's what really matters. Not my 401k and my promotion or lack of promotion and my, and my reputation. Here's what really matters. Ultimately, it's, it's my relationship with God and I'm going to rest in God's arms. And mortality shakes me awake. And suffering and oppression shake me, shake me awake. This is Mary's song, Luke 1, 52 to 55, right? God has, you know, cast down the proud and lifted up the, the oppressed. That's why Bonhoeffer said he never found spiritual life in the kind of highbrow intellectual churches in New York City, only when he visited the black churches who were existentially kind of suffering injustice and oppression. He said, that's where I found life. Because in my suffering, in empty hands, I call out to God and God meets me there. But if I'm not suffering, if I don't, if I don't fail, it, 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 then I'm like, I'm fine. I will never receive. So that, it brings me then to the third Aspect of comfort, which is interesting, it's the universality of comfort. Richard, you just said not everybody receives it. Well, not everybody receives it at the same time, but look at, look at verse 3. Um, a clear voice is, is, is calling, makes smooth in the desert a highway for God. And then verse 4, every valley lifted up, <clears throat> every mountain made low, boom. This is why everybody will receive. And I'm not talking universalism here. I'm just saying everybody pay attention. This is what I mean. If you know you're broken in this text, if you know you're broken, then you're a valley. This is Met Paul, uh, Paul. Isaiah is super poetic. And so if you know you're broken, you're lifted up. Why? Because when I'm broken, my hands are empty and I'm on my knees and I'm crying out. If you're in that space, very good space to be in. 
That's where you find the comfort of God because like brokenness isn't theology to you. It's biography in that moment. If it's biography, you know it. If you know it, God meets you there. That's good news. Job faced his loss. David faced his failures. Paul faced his discouragement. Peter faced his failures. Don't whitewash this. You feel messed up this morning? Good news. God will meet you right there. Just name it. Yeah, but what if you don't know you're broken? Well, then you're not a valley, are you? You're a mountain. And watch this. Uh, every valley lifted up, every mountain hill made low. So if you're here this morning and you're like this, it's, it's all good. My HDL, good cholesterol or whatever it is, through the roof, man. Low blood pressure, money in the bank, 401k, promotion, kids, you know, 4-0. All, you know, check, check, check. A, you're probably living in denial, but pretend it's all good anyway, right? <laughs> then here's my word to you, just wait, just wait. Your day's coming, right? And I don't say that in a mean spirit. I say it because that's the text. Every mountain, what? <laughs> Made low. Everyone. So all of us come to a point. This is, what the, this is the universality. All of us come to a point of saying, I can't live this. I can't do it. It's, for some, it happens quicker than others, but it happens to everybody. And when you're there, rejoice. Because that's your time to crawl up into the lap of your heavenly creator and allow God to wrap you in God's arms and receive the comfort that you desperately need in order to be healed. You know, there's supposed to be a rhythm to our lives. I mean, Ecclesiastes 3 says there's a time for everything. And there is a time when you're a mountain. I love those times. I'll enjoy for the first time since my daughter's moved back from Germany, all our family together in one room on Christmas Day. It'll be awesome. All healthy, as far as I know. Thanks be to God. It's a season. But no, no one lives with the illusion that such seasons are forever. <laughs> so there's, there's a time for laughter and a time for tears. And a time for gain and a time for loss. And a time for mountains and a time for valleys. And when you're in the valley... Receive comfort so that when you're on the mountain, you can be a person who is the presence of Christ, offering unconditional love and comfort to a world that is filled with anxiety. We don't need to jump on the bandwagon of angry, anxious Christians who are, who are just wondering what the future is going to hold. No, no, we're called to be people of peace and comfort and can be. Why? Because the comforter has come. Interesting. Bob Dylan uh, released a song in 1997, excuse me, an album in 1997, whole album called Time Out of Mind. And if, you, if you're a Dylan fan, like Dylan was for me, when I was a kid in the 60s, man, Dylan was a big deal back then, like blowing in the wind and all that stuff, right? 97? It's an old man. So, you know, you listen to the album and you're like, I wonder what this new stuff is. This new stuff, I'm going to tell you, profoundly depressing, actually. Like 11 songs, 10 of them are like an ode to nihilism, in my opinion, right? Despair, doubt, disintegration. And then there's one song in an album, Make You Feel My Love. And that's the song that's still not only around, but Adele did it, Garth Brooks did it, Billy Joel did it, Nora Jones did it. Probably, uh, like every service I've told the story, people come up and say, oh, and here's somebody else who did it too. <laughs> What's so amazing about this song? I think this song, Eric's going to play it now, so Eric, come on up. <laughs> and just imagine 
that you're not hearing Eric's voice in this moment, but this is the voice of God singing to you, inviting you into God's loving arms. Just imagine this is the voice of God and Eric's gonna sing and then I'll come up and close. Just, uh, just as we close, I just want to echo one line that Eric just did so beautifully. By the way, he heard the sermon and then he came and said, I can do that. And then he played it for you guys only at 11. So, beautiful. I'll tell you the line that is so powerful. There are many powerful lines in that song, but here's one that is appropriate for you this morning. I know you haven't made your mind up yet, but I'll never do you wrong. I've known from the moment we met, no doubt in my mind where you belong. If that's God talking to you this morning. I know you haven't made your mind up yet. Oh, no, I've made my mind up a long time ago. Come on, I signed a card when I was four and came forward. Really? Good for you. That's not what we're talking about. I'm in church. That's not also what we're talking about. This is what we're talking about. Where do you go when you're afraid? <laughs> Where do you go when you're anxious? Where do you go when you're lonely? 
And do you even have the courage to name it? But if you have the courage, that's God's word. No doubt in my mind where you belong. Where? In God's arms. Father, thank you for the reminder of Christmas. The war's over. We don't have to pretend. We don't have to posture. We don't have to condemn. We don't have to throw grenades at each other theologically. We can be children in your arms, laughing, crying, receiving, 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 receiving. That filled with you, we're transformed to people of hope in our world. Take us there, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.